Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. The campaign to make Aaron drink water is successful. I truly far. drink more water because of this cup. <laughs> it's it's like I'm a <laughs> small child and need to be like enticed into drinking water because like through fun water cups. <laughs> it's real. It's a real thing. You guys, this is a Ravenclaw tall cup with a straw with like glitter that falls up and down the sides when you turn it. It's, it's it like looks a like a toy. Yep. <laughs> it, it's over the top, but it me- makes me drink water. So it's pretty great. I don't bring it to work though. I feel like I might get judged if I brought it to work. <laughs> you need like a corporate water bottle uh-huh. with a business logo on it to yeah. be hydrated. Would one of you like to get started today? I think you should do it, Cass. <laughs> I can do it, but I think like you come in and you just you sound more enthusiastic and excited about <laughs> things than, than I tend I to. Wanna, like, I mean, I'll I'll do it, but I don't want you guys to feel like I never get to. We start. do not feel that I way. For I sure can don't speak feel for like Zach. That. We have never oh. felt that way. <laughs> nope. My introverted friends, I don't understand <laughs> your brains. <laughs> I just I just had a, a funny vision pop into my head of like. If Aaron and I were to do an honest introduction for the podcast, it would be something instead of like, hey, everybody, like, thanks for being here. Welcome back to the framework. It'd be like, hey, everybody, sorry that you're listening again. Thank you for your time. I really hope it's not too inconvenient. We're going to talk about something and try to make That's it interesting. You guys literally did that for the whole first year. <laughs> we don't know anything, but we're going to talk and anyway. If stop. you want to listen, we're just so indebted to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't have like streamers or banners or anything, but I wanted to congratulate you too. And it's been one year. Has it? One year. As of last week, we have been the reframers posting and sharing our nonsensical thoughts and rants and research with our audience since July. I think it was the 8th. Wow. What? Well, congratulations. That's awesome. Good job, guys. Wow, that's so cool. (laughs) So haven't said it yet, but hello, listeners. We're so, so happy you're here. If it's your first time joining us, holy cow. Hi, I'm Cassie. I'm joined with my co-hosts, Aaron and Zach. We're the Reframers, and we talk about politics in a way that doesn't make us want to pull our hair out and doesn't demonize the other side even when we don't disagree and as you can see apparently we've been doing this for a year if you've been with us for a whole year we couldn't love you more we literally we'll try but i don't think we could love you more thanks so much for being here guys this is super awesome and we're excited to have reached one year that's a huge milestone and and yeah like cassie said thanks for being here yeah we've covered some great topics and i've really enjoyed um of our second season kind of jumping into some things that um, we hope are also just really relevant to what you're seeing in the news right now, because there's a lot out there. So, and our topic today is also like that. So today we're going to be talking about unions, which 
if you didn't know, are on the rise maybe in the U.S. and um, they've been in the news a lot recently. So we wanted to kind of talk about what unions are, what the different opinions about unions are, and then how maybe employees versus businesses think about them. This is so fun because sometimes we come to these and I don't know that something's even in the news. I'm like, what are people talking about this in the news for? But I actually knew this one. I feel like I've seen Starbucks and Amazon headlines. So I'm excited to dive in a little bit because my literal only knowledge of this is, again, my mom's a teacher, teacher unions. But I'm assuming that that's not how every single union is in the world so or in America. So I'm excited to hear from you guys today. You guys are basically like my free education. I'm definitely, I should be paying you. Yeah, I think so. I think definitely so. (laughs) (laughs) Aaron's the only one that would benefit. I mean, I don't know about that, but (laughs) yeah, I was thinking about it with unions. I mean, there's whole college classes on like labor organizing and labor history. And I think there, I remember studying it when I was, when I did like AP US history in high school or something. But like unions are actually a really big and important part of America, like the United States and how labor rights have developed over time. Um, And I think it's interesting that they're sort of becoming more relevant in our world now because they actually haven't been as relevant in the last like 40-ish years as they were before that. For sure in our lifetime, but honestly, yeah, 40, 50 years, we're seeing more prominence of unions and uh, more talk of people unionizing and groups unionizing. And um, I think a lot of unions still have a lot of power that exists. You know, so unions, some unions are very old in the United States. And so those unions themselves, while they're not maybe always getting the headlines, still hold a lot of power and influence in politics um, and culture. So it'll be cool to dive into this topic today, especially like um, Cassie mentioned, you know, Starbucks has had some murmurs of unionization as well as Amazon. So let's get into it. Let's start from the beginning. Somebody tell me, what is a union? Well, a union is basically a collection of people who are in either a certain business or a certain trade, which means that they work across businesses. And their objective is to collectively bargain for something. It can be higher wages. It can be better working conditions. But it's essentially saying, as opposed to me anonymously going to my employer and saying, I want a raise, the union and, uh, and the, all the members of the union, you know, are forming somewhat of a, an equal and opposite partner to the business in terms of power, and hopefully try to leverage that power and influence to gain certain things, objectives, benefits. Yeah, and that's why it's called collective bargaining when you're you know, doing these union negotiations because the union is bargaining collectively on behalf of all of the employees and the union is negotiating with the business. And the history of unions goes back before America. I mean, there were, there were unions that predate American society back in England. Um, but it's interesting that, I mean, there's a a huge history of, of unionization and, and unions, but, uh, a lot of American history unions have been, or union members have been considered or slandered and and uh, insulted quite a bit. So it hasn't always been a a neutral thing of like, oh, people in a union are good. There's been a lot of negative connotations against union members and they've been attacked and 
targeted and insulted and discriminated against. So it's a lot more than just on its face of this individual group leveraging against this individual group. I just have a quick question. This might be obvious, but it when I look up unions in America, labor movement on history.com is what is coming up. And it says that the, the labor movement in the United States grew out of the need to protect the common interests of workers. We're talk- is that the same thing as a union? Is the labor movement like synonymous or is it like an umbrella situation? I don't know that it's exactly synonymous, but re- really close to being synonymous. When you're talking about um, organized labor, you're pretty much talking about unions. And I think kind of what you're talking about, you know, a, a labor movement in order to get more rights for workers, that's big, that's describing kind of the, the union movement and what unions were trying to do. So that's not the only way to get rights for workers, but it is one major way that that's happened in the U.S. I mean, politicians can pass laws that, that grant workers such rights, and a lot of unions do lobby politicians for such laws and things like that. Like, it's not necessarily just the organized labor against the business or, or, you know, bargaining with the business. But a lot of times unions are involved in, in lobbying efforts too, with the government to pass certain laws and things like that, or raise public awareness. Um, so the overall labor movement might be the umbrella and then unions are just probably a cornerstone and a big part of that overall movement. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it. There's a lot of rights that we have today as workers that are, protected through federal laws, but they were really supported and advocated for by the unions um, who sort of implemented these rights in the workplaces and then were advocating for them on the broad national scale. So some of those are like minimum wage. That sort of came from these kinds of movements, as did like social security, um, the reasonable hours, limiting the amount of hours you have to work, um, safer working conditions was one of the big issues with unions, especially in around like the 1940s and 50s because of the amount of manufacturing jobs and the danger of manufacturing jobs, and um, as well as health benefits. So, and I think that one of the reasons there's, we can get into this a little bit more, but one of the reasons there's more interest in unions today I think has to do with some of the effects of COVID and people thinking about health benefits and sick leave and higher wages and, you know, those things that the COVID pandemic shone a light on some of the ways that there were inequalities between different industries and, you know, wanting to bargain for for more of those rights. Some of those are protected federally or by your state and some are not. Like, for example, This I just found so interesting. I had to research it for work. But in Texas, there's no guaranteed paid sick leave. And that's you don't have to get sick leave. That is not a right under like the federal government laws. A lot of states provide it. California requires that you have three days of sick leave if you're a full-time employee. But it was interesting in Texas, Austin, the city of Austin, tried to pass a city ordinance to require private employers to give sick leave to employees. I think mm-hmm. they also were looking for three days. The Cal- I remember uh, the hearing Texas, about this. Yeah. Yeah. The, it got challenged. Um, I don't know what group brought the challenge, but it was on behalf of private businesses. Went to the Texas Supreme Court, who struck down the ordinance and said, you cannot require 
private employers to give sick leave to their employees in this state. If they want to, they can, but you cannot require it. So that's kind of an example where if you're a Texas employee and your employer doesn't give sick leave, you might be more inclined to try and join a union because they can bargain on your behalf to get your employer to give you sick leave. And that would be specific to the employer. That wouldn't be like, that's not something you're challenging within your state. That's me saying, okay, but as long as I work for McDonald's, I'd like to be paid if I'm sick. Yeah, and it doesn't even mean that it would be the employer of any store for the employer you'd work for. And I should clarify that. So, you know, when looking at uh, businesses like Amazon or Starbucks, there's all this talk about unionization because certain branches have unionized. But just because one branch of Starbucks has unionized, that doesn't mean all of Starbucks is now unionized. You have to actually take it by the various branches of the different organizations. So Amazon, I think one or two of their branches have organized. Maybe it's more than that. I, I should know that. But some, the employees have not voted to unionize. So the union actually didn't go forward in certain places. So just because you're an Amazon employee doesn't mean you're part of a union. It actually depends on where you work. I looked this up on, on Indeed.com. Depending on where you look, you'll get different numbers. But Indeed said that there were seven different types of unions. So the first is a craft union, which is uh, an organized group who have careers in the same craft or trade. So like electrical workers, American Nurses Association, and the NFL fall into this category. There's an industrial union, which are made up of people who all work within the same industry. International longshoremen and warehouse union would be an example. Public service unions, this would be your teachers, workers, your postal workers, your police force. Then there are federations, which are basically groups of unions, so like a, a, a hierarchy of unions. There's an uplift union, which are known as friendly unions, and they are um, used for collective bargaining to serve the social and emotional well-being of their members. So that's less specific and more, you know, a, a emotional, mental health type. Then there's identity exclusive unions, which are organized groups of people who share a common social, cultural, or religious identity. And then lastly are enterprise unions, which is uh, collective bargaining groups that exist within a single company or enterprise. So for example, we were just talking about Starbucks or, or Amazon. Those would be the enterprise unions, which it's just a, a smaller group within that one organization. Thank you. My, so how many was that? Is that like 10 different kinds of unions? That was seven. Depending on where you look, some people wow. will say there's nine or 14, but this felt encompassing enough for me. So, Wow. I had no idea. And those are all distinct. That's not like there's three main and then a few of them fall underneath. There are two like pretty big broad categories though of public unions and private unions. That's like the mm -hmm. uh, important distinction. So private unions yeah. are for the private sector. So most people would fall under that category if they were in a union. And then the public sector are if you have a government job, you're working for the government. So that's like teachers, firefighters, postal workers, police, right? Like you're all um, working for the government. And interestingly, even though I think there's fewer people in the public sector, although I'm not sure the numbers on that, currently more people are in public sector unions than private sector unions, which is a departure from the past. The three questions that I asked you guys to prepare before we started was what type of unions are there in America? Why might someone be for or against a union on an individual level, like just my preference? And then why might a business 
be a, for or against a union. And so if you guys could indulge me, I'm going to just, I'm going to show my hand. I have an office quote from the TV show. Okay. For my office fans, this will be familiar. If not, this is from Jan. I'm told that there's been some interest in forming a union and that Michael supported it. Obviously, he's not a friend of yours because he didn't tell you the facts. So let me. If there is even a whiff of unionizing in this branch, I can guarantee you the branch will be shut down like that. They unionized in Pittsfield, and we all know what happened in Pittsfield. It will cost each of you a fortune in legal fees and union dues, and that will be nothing compared to the cost of losing your jobs. So I would think long and hard before sacrificing your savings and your futures just to send a message. So I think <laughs> hopefully your answer is going to help with both sides of that. I always thought that that was a super interesting piece. And for context, like the show came out in the, in the 2008, 9, 10 mm -hmm. era. So that was like a very interesting time in the United States with the recession and whatnot. Like I said earlier, my mom is a teacher. She's in the union, has been on the bargaining team, like is very pro-union. But obviously that can definitely, I'm guessing that that is different than like being in the private sector. And I just always was confused and didn't understand why some people would be like, I want to be in a union. And then the management would say, no, you can't. You'll lose your job and they'll shut down. I just, I don't understand it. Okay, can I jump in here? There's a, I'm, there's so many variables, but let's do it. <laughs> yeah, so for one, I'm so glad you brought up that office quote. I watched that scene before we recorded because it was the first thing I thought of. I was like, oh, unions, like this happened in the office. So for one, like 95% of what Jan says in that clip is illegal. You cannot say what she said the way she said it. It's, it's actually against the law for an employer to tell people, you will lose your job if you join a union. You cannot do that. What you can do, though, and this is, it's kind of ironic that you can do this thing, is you can sort of predict that things could happen that are bad if you do join a union. Mm -hmm. So you can say, well, you know, we can't, we won't guarantee that this branch will close if there's a union, but it's happened before in other places. And so you can sort of insinuate that that could be a danger of mm -hmm. the current situation. I think it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense that like, that's okay, but flat out saying this will close is not okay. But the way that like Jan Levinson Gould, who's Levinson Gould at that time, phrases it, it's you can't just go in and say like, no, you cannot have a union. That's that's against the law. I think that something that's really interesting about this union debate is that you can approach it from a high level political philosophy direction. And that doing it that way, you're sort of looking at this fight between the owners and managers of business and the employees and workers of business. And that's really a class conflict. And then a question of who the government is helping, if they're helping the employees or helping the businesses. And I think it's interesting because in the 1950s, I mean, a lot of the conversation around unions had to do with like communism versus capitalism. And it makes sense when you're thinking about, you know, rights of workers versus rights of business. That's a very Marxist idea, right? Of yeah. rising up against the 
proletariat or the bourgeoisie and the proletariat is going to rise up and fight as like this organization of workers. And there were a lot of some of the founding trade unionists were socialists, communists and anarchists. And so you sort of have this element of these really intense competing political theories that go into this underlying debate about unions. And we don't talk about them like on a practical level. There's a lot of practical considerations why like some people might want one and some people might not. But I think it's interesting to think about like what's going on at the uh, high level as well. You scared her away with your answer, Aaron. I scared her away. I have to mention this just because like, <laughs> I, I, I knew about this act, but it was, it, it was just kind of crazy when you think about it. The Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 was a law passed by Congress over a presidential veto, where and it required union officials to file an affidavit and take an oath that they weren't communists, which feels like... Wow. A violation of free speech and all sorts of other things, but you that they, that was an act passed by Congress because they were so afraid in of 1947? communism. Nineteen forty-seven. Nineteen forty-seven. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there's this tie between like communism and unions. I don't think that's as strong as it used to be. But I don't it's think so either. There. But <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that we're mentioning it because I don't think you can talk about unions without acknowledging the fact that that. By nature, it, it is a little, I mean, it's called collective bargaining. It's collectivism versus individualism. And that's one of the mm-hmm. big, you know, to answer the, the specific question is why could someone be for or against unions on an individual level? Well, if you're, you know, one of the cons uh, of unionization or being a, involved in a union from the individual standpoint is if you're a really high performer, you know, you're somebody who goes above and beyond, you're always there, but you belong to a union it doesn't matter your output because your your uh, raise and your pay scale and all that stuff is scheduled. So if you're an individual in a, in a business, you're highly, you know, let's say a salesperson, something like that. You bring in a ton of revenue for your business. You're typically rewarded with high compensation for that because you're a big asset to the business. But if you're in that same situation and belong to a union, it maybe doesn't matter because your union has negotiated with the business that everybody in the company, regardless of performance or whatever, will get a 2% raise every year. So you're de-incentivized in that situation to work as hard as maybe you would. And so maybe from the business standpoint, that's a negative because then you lose that high performer who's going to go seek employment elsewhere. Yeah. And I think in the collective bargaining agreements, which are the contracts between the union and the business, you can deal with some of that so that it's not just an across the board thing. I mean, you can still take into account performance and things like that, but it does make it harder to like fire someone. You need more cause to fire someone if they're in a union. So that's another critique of unions is that they protect people who are not great workers who can be, you know, lazy or not give a lot of benefit or value to the business. I know that's like one of the criticisms I've heard about like the teachers union or like Mm -hmm. the police union is also criticized for protecting police officers who've had bad behavior in the past. I think it can be a little difficult to frame the question as why would an employee want this versus not want this? Because I think one of the, the bigger motivators are like, what are the pros and cons of a union and how do they get communicated to employees or through businesses? So like one of the benefits is that 
you you tend to have higher wages if you're a unionized employee. So mm-hmm. I saw figures between 11% to 16% higher wages for union employees versus non-unionized employees in the same industry. You can have better benefits on the whole. And also, I thought this was interesting, for certain minority populations, it makes an even bigger difference in what your wages are. So for um, African-American people, the statistic was 13.7% more that they earned than non-unionized people. And then for Hispanics, it was 20.1% more that they earned, which is significant when you're talking about wage. So, and that is, it's interesting because that didn't used to be the case. Unions do have a complicated history. They didn't allow women and minorities for a long time when they first began in like the 19, well, not first began, but really started to take off in like the early um, 1910s, you know, around like 1913, uh, I think was one of the big first unions. And they, they were very exclusive about their membership. But today, you know, they include everyone or they say that they include everyone and they've also supported legislation such as like civil rights legislation and other sorts of um, social justice activism like that so they are also kind of have this complicated history but have developed over time and there's some real potential benefits for people joining unions as far as being able to have more of these workers rights but then on the flip side, you do have to pay union dues, and those can be between $500 to $1,000 a year. And you're sort of beholden to what the union decides. You have a right to kind of participate in that. But if it's you know a union, there's certain people who are in charge of doing the bargaining between all of the employees and the employer, then if you have personal interests for your job, um, you might not have those interests represented as much. Because the union is worried about the whole collective force, right? And so if you want to negotiate your own personal raise, that potentially could be harder if there's a union. In this situation, a lot of the pros for the individual are cons for the business. And a lot of the pros for the business are cons for the individual. Like if you look at a pro, a pro and con list of you know, pros and cons of unions from the individual standpoint, all you have to do is really mirror that, you know, flip the, the pro and con from to see it from the business perspective. So from the individual, you know, standpoint, if you're a union member and you're, you know, collectively bargaining for higher wages, the pro is you get a higher wage. That's great. From the business perspective, the con is you have higher labor fees, labor costs. Um, you know, so Aaron mentioned seniority for the pros at, at the individual level. If you're been at the company a long time and the company has dire straits, you're probably going to be the last one fired because it's kind of first one in, last one out. So the the least senior people, if there's you know something like that, the, the new hires that have only been there a year, they're guaranteed to be the first to go. And you who've been there for 20 years, you're going to stay. Alternatively, if you have somebody from the business side, if you have somebody who's a crummy worker and they've been a part of the union and they've been there for 20 years, you can't get rid of them because they have seniority and, and it's as Aaron mentioned, it's much harder to do, not impossible, but it's much harder. So um, really that's a good way to think about it. If you see a pro list and you're wondering like, why would a business not want this? Or why would somebody not want this? Well, if you're a business owner, all those pros are potentially cons for you. Mm-hmm. And businesses really don't like unions. And you can just see that in the way that they fight against unions. And there's an entire industry of consulting firms that businesses hire in order to fight unionizing efforts. 
So, which is interesting. They pay a lot of money in order to not have a union because unions mean that it's it's more expensive for businesses because they might have to pay higher wages and give more time off and not have as many hours. You know, there's real impacts to businesses. But it's interesting. I was looking into reasons why there might be more interest in unions today than there have been in the past. There's been more um, support for unions than in the past, too. Gallup poll had um, a statistic that said that the approval of unions is at a high since 1965. Right now, in 2021, 68% of people polled were in favor of unions, which is, I mean, that's high. That's way more than than even a, a majority. So, you know, we're moving in that direction. And some of the reasons they gave for why that might be the case is kind of similar to the 1950s, coming out of a recession and having more sort of worker power because there's this need for workers and then seeing the economy recover, although we're kind of going back into a recession now. This is like, you know, kind of during COVID, the economy was still sort of like booming and now it's kind of like coming back down. But at least last year, that was not as much the case. But looking at that and seeing higher profits and then thinking about wanting to have those higher profits, basically. And I saw this great breakdown. It was talking about CEOs at America's top 350 companies. So they earned an average of $17.2 million in 2018, which includes their exercise stock, stock options. That's 278 times higher what the average employee earned. 278 times higher. The ratio was only 20 to 1 in 1965 and 58 to 1 in 1989. So 58 to 1 versus 270 to 1, like that's a crazy difference. And it makes sense employees looking at those statistics yeah. to be like, why is that person making 17 million and I'm making like 50,000, right? And so you see that and you're like, well, I should be making higher wages. If they're making that much, I should make more. So I think that's part of it too. And then also employees are wanting different kinds of benefits than are protected by law right now. You know, we're maybe not as worried about minimum wage as we used to be, but people are looking at sick leave now and paid time off and paid, paid family leave. Yes, family leave is a really big one. And then also even newer things like working from home or the, in Google, Google had a unionizing effort based on their response to sexual assault allegations, sexual harassment allegations, and how they handled that and employees wanting them to do a better job there. There's all sorts of reasons that are not just wage related why you might want to join a union. The impetus for the Amazon unionization is the factory conditions. So that goes back to the manufacturing uh, pressures that were unions of, of yesteryear, where the, the working conditions in the factories, the, um, you know, the warehouses and Amazon were so bad that that those workers are trying to get better conditions, right? Not have to pee in bottles, you know, not have to be analyzed at every moment to, wait, wait, to be as you, maximum productive, right? Do you it's know like, about this, Cassie? The peeing bottles thing? I'm really sad. I don't know if I want to know. Well, it's, it's basically what you think that the Amazon warehouses were so high pressure that the workers there were facing just extreme conditions of like, they couldn't even go and take a bathroom break because they constantly had to be fulfilling orders. And it, it got to the point where numerous people, not just like, oh, one person came out and said, like, I did it. But numerous people were complaining about like having to like pee at their station to like keep fulfilling orders and things. So And Amazon uh, at first 
made a big deal of like, no, that never happens. That's ridiculous. And then they looked into it and they're like, yeah, no, that happened. And we're going to deal with it basically. So I I think those types of things, you know, compound with all the things that Aaron mentioned too, on top of COVID is drawn this into, and, oh, and the transparency. That's the other thing I wanted Mm. to say too, is we have so much more access to information so we can easily see what the CEO of X, Y, and Z corporations make. We can easily see what their, you know, overall profit was for the year and those types of things and say, okay, well, you know, I know what my wage is. Like I, I should be sharing more of what this company makes. So I think all that, all those factors have contributed to the uptick in, in support of unions. What's interesting though, is that while support for unions has increased, participation in unions hasn't substantially increased. And maybe that's coming, but um, I think it was like 1983, around 20% of workers were um, part of a union. And today it's like 11%, almost less than half. And hasn't been, you know, substantially increasing, but there's more union unionizing efforts than there have been in the past as well. I mean, even strikes and um, walkouts have increased. Um, I was looking at work stoppages. So this is the number of work stoppages idling a thousand workers or more. In 2010, there were 11. In 2019, there were 25. So some of these methods that have been used in the past um, are actually, you know, resurging a little bit. And there were also a bunch of protests during COVID for various sorts of worker rights that we haven't seen as much, um, you know, before that as either. So to answer your original question of why Jan would say all that stuff in the office, for them as the business, they're probably looking at this saying, if my warehouse workers decide to unionize, that's going to be a bunch of increase of costs. We're going to try to fight it. You guys are, it's cheaper for the business to probably just shut down the branch and hire out salespeople uh, in other branches because it's not like what they do at at Scranton was unique. And it's probably cheaper for the business to say, we're not going to pay your increased fees. We're not going to spend a bunch of capital to get you, you know, better equipment or air conditioning or, you know, whatever their complaints were about the conditions in the warehouse. We're just going to, close the branch. We're trying to close one anyway, right? I mean, at that time, early episode, your season one, season two, there was a lot of talk about branch closures. So they said, you make the decision easy for us. We're going to close your branch. We're going to hire salespeople and other branches to cover that. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make up for it elsewhere. So that's probably why Jan was going about it in that way, even though 95% of it was illegal, but that's probably her perspective on things. It's true. And it's really interesting. This is one of the things I want to talk about is how businesses fight these unionizing efforts, because it's pretty extreme what what they can do and what they do do. So unions will cost you your job rhetoric. That's for sure a super powerful message that that is out there that businesses use. And that's maybe one of the most motivating Mm -hmm. things for people deciding that they don't want to join a union. And just so everyone knows, in order to join a union, there's a whole union campaign. There's a process that happens. So first, you have to have enough interest to even start the campaign. You have to get 30% of the workforce to sign on that they would be like interested in the union. And then there's a whole union campaign where like the union is going to kind of give their, it's kind of like a political campaign between candidates. The union gives all their arguments why you should join the it. Pitch, yeah. yeah, the pitch. And then the business 
does all their arguments why you shouldn't join it unless for some reason they're like a more pro-union business and they don't care. And then um, there's a vote at the end of it, a union vote, and it has to be at least half or more than half of the employees have to vote to have the union. And then the collective bargaining process will then begin. And that's another one of the problems is negotiating these union contracts takes on average like three years. And then there's some that take even longer than that. I saw one, they were looking at the DISH network union. I think it was maybe in Texas. They had voted to unionize in 2009 and they still don't have a contract. It's been like 10 years and they still didn't have a contract wow. finalized, which is not supposed to be legal. It's You have a duty under the law to have good faith bargaining. That's for the union and for the business. But it's hard actually to hold the business to that sometimes. And so you get these drawn out processes. That was a pretty extreme example, but even three years is a long time. If you vote for a union are expecting some changes like pretty fast mm-hmm. on the, the, you know, costing your job thing. There was one study I saw where they looked at a bunch of companies and 51% of those companies threatened to close their plants. If unions won during these like union campaigns and only 1% closed after a union victory so that's like it by and large that's a way overstated risk and businesses use it because it's effective but it doesn't seem like that really is the case for the most part you know businesses aren't closing wholesale because unions are are coming out of the mix maybe not quite so cut and dry but like striking right like you had a big thing about like strike breakers so if if you are belonging to a union and there's a union that calls for a strike, meaning everybody stops working. And if you're a union member, I think you have to, you know, not necessarily, it, I guess it would depend on the contract. But if, if the union calls for a strike, you have to stop working. Like you can't be like, well, I like my job and my boss is good. I'm going to go in anyway. Like you're a union member, you pay the dues, you have to stop. It's part of that collective agreement. You know, at least back in the olden days, I don't know how it is now, but you would have strike breakers because there was an excess of labor that people who are belonging to the union, you had other people that were willing to work for the conditions that the union members were working under for, you know, the same or lesser wage, just because they had nothing. And so then those people would get employment. So you would have situations where you would have, you know, people striking on the line out front of a factory. And then you would have a bunch of people who would like cross the line, right? Break the strike and go into that factory and say, okay, like put me to work. You know, I can run a machine, I can do whatever. And and then they would get paid. And then that person is like, okay, well now I'm out of a job because I don't, you know, you broke, you, you're striking, you know, until the strike is resolved, if it's resolved in a, in a good way, then the people that come in, like now they have a job because the business still is running. Yeah. It's interesting. There's some laws now that prevent that sort of like undercut of people coming in to, to fill in when there's a strike to try and address Mm -hmm. that issue. Certainly was a problem in the past, though. I read something about Chinese workers who were working on the railroad. They they were a group who tried. It wasn't like unionizing, but they tried to like strike to um, get better mm-hmm. work. And they brought in like it was some other immigrant group to try and shore up the the lack of labor, and it largely worked. And then also they cut off the food supply to the Chinese immigrants, and then that effectively ended their strike because they needed food. Did some bad things on like <laughs> businesses have done some not great things for employees, um, and that's one of the reasons why like unions have done a lot of good, I think, as far as workers' rights. But 
they're not totally black and white because they do have these complexities and there's been things that they've done not well. You know, in the 60s and 70s, there was all these scandals about like embezzlement from the union. That's not as much of a problem now. Um, I looked into that and it doesn't seem like there's been, there was like one instance of that in recent years, but largely has not been. Um, But that was a big problem and that totally hurt the reputation of unions. I just have a quick book recommendation. I just read The Four Winds, and this is by Kristen Hanna, who I know for many is the author of the century right now. Maybe the century is dramatic, but she's the author of the decade. It's only 2022, so that seems good. But she has written The Nightingale, The Great Alone, um, Firefly Lane, and The Four Winds is a really interesting book starting in um, Texas in 1921, and then it's 1934, and it's Dust Bowl and they're trying to decide if they're going to leave Texas and go west to California. And just it really focuses on the, the immigrants and then also just like the migrants within the United States trying to find work, getting stuck in these crazy, horrible living conditions and then equally awful working conditions, just trying to make their families not starve and die. And I mean, truly fascinating, gripping uplifting, barely heartbreaking, mostly, but a really good book about about unions. And there is a focus on the unionization effort at the end of the book that is gripping and terrifying and sad because the businesses had mm-hmm. so much more power than these small people who like literally need the jobs, but are being killed by keeping wow. the jobs. That's man. I, I know about that book. I didn't so, know that it had that aspect to it, though. They try to be a little bit coy about like whether or not mm. certain things are going to happen, but it was very interesting. And now you know a little bit. Mm-hmm. Of spo- I mean, it's not a spoiler. You don't know what's going to happen, but I would recommend it. Just a little side read for the Reframers Book Club that doesn't exist yet. Sounds but great. Someday. Yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> the last book Cassie gave me, I read in one night. So she's got good book recommendations. <laughs> that was a good one. That yeah. was the Midnight Library. Just mm-hmm. a little book interlude here for you. Um, not sponsored. <laughs> by these authors that would be cool maybe something to add to the vision board but the midnight library really good book about if you died and were in this sort of intermittent not gone on yet place and could look through a library about different versions of your life had you make different choices would you choose a different version of your life and what do all those different choices mean in hindsight and there's a big book of regrets it's very interesting did you like it I thought it was okay I think I read it too late because it kind of is doing the multiverse thing which is like all media now and so it didn't feel as like new of an idea but it was you know there are parts of it I really liked I like the end yeah I wanted to ask why is this in the news so much right now I just want to say one thing about what we were talking about at the end about like some of the bad reputation that unions have. I don't think unions were always above board in their tactics, but I think unions have resorted to, you know, violence. And, you know, if you can't make the business do what you want legally, you know, something happens and suddenly the owner has a change of heart and supports the union, you know, but why isn't the news right so much right now? Well, I think Aaron kind of mentioned that a little bit in terms of the exposure that we saw of working conditions from COVID and, the CEO salaries and, you know, there's this, you know, meme of late stage capitalism. And, and so people are saying we should have workers have more money and all these things. So that I think is why, but I'm curious if there's other reasons that we haven't mentioned. 
I want to be a 100-year-old woman and ask somebody to explain the late-stage capitalism meme to me because I don't totally think I understand it. The, I think the joke is like joke? capitalism is bad. <laughs> We're running, you know, there's businesses that are running away in excess with their profits. and But you also then have, you know, really poor working conditions and you have people that can't afford uh, a place to live and, a, and rent is too high, but we need to raise rents every year. Like it's, it's this runaway of competition um, that is actually, instead of capitalism being like a free exchange of goods and services, it actually is basically like cronyism or, or, or something like that. Really incentivizing greed and not helping the like normal, quote, working person. I was going to say another thing like related to, I think why unions are a bigger deal right now is also just because of the democratic socialism rhetoric, you know, because of Bernie and Warren, Elizabeth Warren, and these sort of bigger politicians that didn't have the kind of popularity that they do now and talking about this more collective, you know, ordinary person should have the power and should be able to like make more money and you're being stepped on by the corporations. That's like, a there's a lot of rhetoric out there about that right now. And I think that probably adds to this idea of like, oh yeah, no, maybe we should have more of these rights or be able to like fight these businesses and joining the union could be a way to do that. And they're just, there's more union organizing now. I mean, Amazon and Starbucks, those are a big deal. And then um, Kickstarter in 2020 was the first tech company to organize under a union. So, you know, I think it is actually just like happening now. And then related to that, the efforts that businesses take to not have unions to prevent union organizing are also um, kind of more under a microscope than they've been in the past. And I, that kind of bleeds into some of the political stuff going on because there's actually a bill in Congress to try and deal with some of the ways that businesses have tried to prevent union organizing. So I have some examples of what, what they've done. For one, it's their workplace. And so they have control, like more control over the employees than like someone who's coming in like a union rep does because union reps do not have to be allowed into workplaces. Like businesses can kick them out um, if they want to and most do because it's not really like within their interests to have them there. Um, so businesses can put up these huge signs that say like, vote no on unions. It's going to hurt you in these various ways. So you have all of that going on. They have these meetings. They call, they're called captive audience meetings because the workers are a captive audience. You can require people to go to meetings about unions. And some of them, there's I, I listened to some audio from some of them, and it's it's similar to this like, Jan Levinson quote where they're not totally saying they're going to close, but they're like, well, this could, you know, I've just seen this destroy families and people going bankrupt, like really extreme things like that. They're not talking about like a particular business, but they're saying, well, I've seen this happen. Wait, I'm sorry. You said they can like require them to like, they have to come and then they are going to spit this at them for an extended amount of time. It feels like it, right? So that's, but that's one of the things they can do. They, and in these meetings, they emphasize things like union dues, like saying, well, you're going to have to pay all this and the union is not actually going to do that much for you. That's one of the messages, you know, the message about potentially like closing plants. Hmm. A lot of businesses also take individual action against employees who are pro-union, you know, and they're sort of these 
transparent ways where they get written up for discipline or even fired because absences has been a big one. Like, oh, you have too many absences or there's problems with your like work product, but it kind of comes after the person is like pro-union. And you can fight that as an employee, but at the end of the day, what you're doing if you're suing for wrongful termination is you're not going to get your job back most likely, right? Like you're, you're going to get maybe back pay and maybe a little bit of future pay, but that's it. And, and for a business, that might be worth it for them to get rid of people who are going to try and make a union. I saw one statistic. It was U.S. employers are charged with violating federal law in 41.5% of all union election campaigns. That's It's over 40%. There's these claims that the businesses are violating law. And one of the big problems is that there's not a lot of consequences for businesses for violating these laws. Basically, if they mess with one of the elections, they might have to have a second election. So basically like a redo election if they've tampered too much with the first one. But 96% of second elections, the employer wins. And it doesn't, so it doesn't really do that much for them. And if they have wrong for termination, you know, it, it depends on the situation, but that potentially is not a ton of money either especially with some of our, our new laws about class actions and what, you know, who can sue related to what. One of the things that there's a bill I think is actually already passed that House of Representatives is focused on trying to deal with some of these problems. Um, it's called the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or PRO for short. And it would outlaw captive audience meetings. So, you know, what you were... <laughs> Shocked yes. by Cassie. That's that's one of the things that it's I'm like, yeah, no, about, you should be able to yes. do that. It enables arbitration to settle a first contract, which is good for these contracts that are like dragging out years and years. You can actually bring it to an arbitration tribunal to like deal with it instead of just sitting in negotiations forever. But the biggest thing is that it has actual financial penalties for companies who are violating workers' rights related to union organizing. And I think that could actually make a really big difference because if businesses know they're going to pay big fines if they're messing with these processes and violating the law, they're, I think they're going to be less likely to do them if the fines are big enough. They're going to want to avoid that in a way that they just don't have as much of an incentive to now. So that's it. It's an interesting law. I think it's got quite a bit of support, actually. If the, if the fines are big enough, right? Because still at the end of the day, if the fine is cheaper than what they right. would pay in union you know if the union would pass then it's like i'll just pay the fine it's cheaper for me anyway mm -hmm. yeah exactly i did see one thing i i thought this was so funny one of the arguments apparently the businesses will make to people to get them not to join the union is that well if there's a union then you're going to get worse benefits and wages which is a super ironic argument because if that were the case, like it's that's not going to be the case. If that were the case, the business should be for the union because they would right. be paying less wages and not having to give as many benefits. Even some of their arguments are just, you look at them and you're like, these are fear-mongering tactics. Employees at the end of the day, they have, they're, they're the ones who vote on this. But if you're just getting hit with all of these messages every day when you go to the workplace, that's going to be really impactful in how you view this, right? And if you don't have the extracurricular time to go talk to the union reps or go to all of their meetings, then you might not have the other side of the conversation. 
No kidding. So I think that legislation is another reason why this is more in the news. I'm curious if you guys have thoughts or want to talk about the difference between public sector and private sector unions. Yeah, I don't sure. I don't have a lot about them, I guess. I, I have the definition mm-hmm. of them, but I don't I don't have a lot of opinions about public versus private sector. So I unions. But why don't why don't you tell me? I do a about. little bit because um, of the difference in kind of in philosophy behind the two. So obviously both have similar objectives in terms of collective bargaining and you know wages, working conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the, the things that's difficult for me with the uh, public sector unions, and this is partly because of my general philosophy, but also partly because my stepfather worked in a union and, and was not for the, I mean, he worked for the government and was not for what the union, he said, the union doesn't advocate for me. Um, <clears throat> but he still had to like pay the union dues and, and all these things. But basically, if you're a, if you're a private sector and your, you know, Amazon branch unionizes and that increases costs to the company, which I'm not, sympathetic to Amazon here, they can deal with it. But if they have to raise costs because of the unionization, consumers have a choice to go shop somewhere else. If you are in a public sector, you know, teacher, police, firefighter, any of those types of things, and you're, you know, the union is, is bargaining for all of these things, there's no option for the consumer. The consumer is every citizen of the country. And so there's there's kind of three things that can happen. One of them is the taxes are raised to cover the cost of the goods, right? Because the government needs to fund the government. Um, and if it has to increase wages on some you know calendar <clears throat> across the board, they're going to raise taxes for that. Services are going to be cut. So existing services the government provides will be cut in order to pay. Or you know the, whatever happens, to comp- the additional compensation is never paid, which we kind of mentioned with like the, the long drawn out um, contract negotiations. So to me, that I think is a, a pretty big difference is if you're a private sector, the consumer has a choice. And if, if the company ends up going in a bad direction, they may end up going out of business in the extreme case. But for public sector, there's no alternative. Ever, you know, we all have to bear that cost of increased wages for police and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's interesting. And also public unions, they bargain directly with like legislatures. So that's an interesting dynamic because they also have a lot of interest in what laws get passed. Um, And yeah, there's overlap there for sure. I I guess the, the issue I see, and I don't know if there's a solution, is like, what else do you do then? You know, if you're a public sector employee and you want to join a union, you just not get to. You know, and it, that doesn't feel right to me. And unions have really set the set standards for workplaces having certain rights. And I don't think it's fair if just because you work for the government, you don't have that opportunity. I hear what you're saying, but at the end of the day, it's like if a private business has to increase the cost of their goods in order to cover higher salaries, that's being filtered down to people anyway. So we're always going to be paying more, whether it's for like, through taxes, through the public sector, or or it's higher, you know, goods through the private sector. But if, but if you know, if you don't say Amazon unionizes across the board, or or even to an extent where they do have to increase prices, you say, okay, well, as a 
this may be a bad example, but as an alternative, I can go to Walmart because Walmart didn't unionize, even though I think Walmart does have a lot of, of union membership. But you see what I'm saying? Like there's there's a way where you can shop the competition because the the non-union competitor would presumably have cheaper prices versus and, and I think the alternative so is, is you would increase wages be based the, on Yeah, you just don't have unions. And you would have you would have wage increases by performance and things like that that are done by merit rather than by just because you belong to the union, you receive the allocated benefit. And I say this because I, I saw something too that, as you mentioned, that that the unions will lobby legislature and a callback to one of our previous episodes about public and private prisons, that the California Prison Guard Union poured millions of dollars into an influence policy in California. It spent 22 million on campaign donations uh, in the last like 20 years to basically have legislatures pass laws that would benefit its union members by keeping prisons more full, um, which is something that I, I didn't see anything when we talked about our, our private versus public prison um, episode. But that's a whole interesting angle where we were kind of talking about how, oh, the, the incentive structure for private prisons is a little jacked up because you're basically saying, you know, we need to keep these prisons full so the prison runner can make money. But the California Prison Union um, is basically doing the same thing at a legislative level by legislating the or lobbying the legislator to pass laws that would in, result in, you know, more criminals, basically. Yeah, I think that's a problem. I think you can address that, though, by if you wanted to address it, you could just say, like, you're a public union and you're not allowed to be involved in politics. <laughs> yeah, we do sure. that for nonprofits in large part like i think that you may be able to handle that aspect of it although you know a lot of times they know about which benefits people need because of how they're doing the negotiation so you'd have to figure that out but i want to go back to kind of what you're saying like oh well we'll just go back to like a merit-based mm -hmm. wage system or something like that that's but you could make that same argument that that is the argument that people make for the private ones i don't think that's like the the solution the reason that people want unions is because they're not getting all of the merit-based raises that they want or they're not getting the benefits that they think that they should have right so i mean i suppose you could try and lobby you know the government yourself to be like the government needs to provide these things but then you're at a disadvantage and a lot of the the public jobs have really great benefits partly because of these big public unions and that does make that, I mean, that the government competes for a labor force too. And that's part of, you know, some people want to work for the government because they have good pensions and good health care and things like that. But I don't know that just saying like, well, yeah, we'll go back to this model of like, you know, merit-based compensation that for one, I think that's too simple because that doesn't address all the other things that you would want mm -hmm. as an employee. And then for two, if it's not happening, then how do you deal with it if you don't have this opportunity to collectively bargain? Okay, so take take this example. I don't know that I have all the answers to, to your question, but take, for example, um, like the hiring and firing and, and the wages, right? Just those two things. And then juxtapose police versus teachers. If you have high performer high-performing teachers, you would want those teachers paid well because they're doing a good job. We all had teachers in school that were just like, come in, throw on a video, 
you're good to go, right? Like low performing, not educating, um, or worse, right? Same thing with, with police on the other side. You would want to elevate the police officers that are doing the best job, the ones that have the fewest complaints, the ones that are, you know, out there in the community, the the Captain Holtz of police force for anybody who watches Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? Versus protecting the bad teachers or the bad police that are in a position where they still get paid, they still have job security, they're still retained because they belong to the union. So I don't, I don't think that it's an unequivocal bad that, you know, and that's definitely not what I'm saying here, that you should just disband unions. But I think from a public sector standpoint, that it puts, it allows for some degree of rot or decay or malaise to take effect in these organizations where both of those two jobs come under heavy criticism for le leaving bad cops in the payroll and, and whatnot. So I, I don't think it's, it's just such a thing that unions are good because they've done good in the past. I think that there's there it needs to be looked at because I don't think it's an unequivocal good. Well, for one of my listeners who has been requesting us to talk about police forever and ever, this is your your bite-sized piece, Amanda. Um, because yes, I want to talk about unions protecting people like some police officers or or just corrupt people in other industries who don't I don't know, don't deserve to be who don't deserve the merit, is right? Too harsh to say. I don't know, but basically they're they're being protected. And if, like Zax is saying, if they weren't in that group, a merit-based review would say, no, you're out because of thing you did. Yeah. Um, first of all, you brought up Brooklyn Nine-Nine. This is just going to be an episode littered with pop culture references. I was just going to say, did you guys watch the final season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Yeah. Super yes. political for one. Yes. Really, really interesting because it's, you know, this comedy about a police like force and their final season came out like right after a lot of the black lives matter protests yeah. and the renewed focus on police and police brutality. So it was kind of interesting how they handled it, but uh, they have the union rep for the police department is like one of the main antagonists mm -hmm. of that final season. And it's John C. McGilley or McGilligy, however you say his last name. He's Dr. Cox from yeah. scrubs. McGinley, McGinley. Yes. <laughs> But Dr. Cox from Scrubs, and he's really good, you know, he's like really over the top and the way that he sort of twists things of like, no, the police are just protecting themselves. They're doing their duty yes. when the police are like behaving badly. I think that's a totally fair point. Like there are problems with the police union. I think there's problems with the teachers union. There's pro I, you know, so I agree. I don't know that it's just like you look at unions. I think they've done a lot of net good. But that doesn't mean that it's like, oh, it's a union. It's like automatically a good thing, you know, and I think unions have a complicated history um, and they have problems right now. But I don't know if the solution is you just get rid of unions. I think it's, you know, what? how do we look at the problems in the unions and see how we can address them? So maybe that's part of the collective bargaining process of building in more flexibility to be able to get rid of teachers that are not performing mm -hmm. well, to be able to, you know, discipline and then get rid of police officers who have done something wrong, you know, especially with, it's really hard with police, right? Because if you're hurting citizens because of your bad behavior, like that needs to be addressed and it needs to be able to be addressed quickly, right? So I don't disagree with you uh, as far as like the problems with some of these unions, but I think the solution is more 
well, how do we adjust that as opposed to just not having the union? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's a free country. And so even though on my personal preference, I think I'm not necessarily for a union. I don't belong to a union. I, I don't intend on joining one. But I think if you want to organize because you feel like that's the best choice for you, you know, as, as a employee, then sure, go ahead. But I do think that like unequivocally, there has to be something where we introduce some merit-based, I, I would like pay scale introduced. I think that that makes sense to me. Like, I don't, I think if you're a great teacher, you deserve to be compensated for that. I think if you're a lousy teacher and you think you're a great teacher, that doesn't necessarily mean you should be compensated like everybody else. And and then the retention, right? Like, especially the, the case is so clear for, for police. But if you're, if you're underperforming to whatever job standard your job is, you don't need to be kept, especially if, if the taxpayers are paying for it. Like the average needs to be, I think, higher because we're all paying and contributing to that and are, to reuse the term from earlier, a captive audience. We can't be like, well, I'm going to go hire, you know, Joe police down the road. Like that doesn't exist. So I think the standard has to be higher. Um, the way that I see to do that is to introduce merit rankings or um, reviews, you know, something like that back into the, into the evaluation of how we keep, promote, retain, pay. Uh, our, our public sector employees. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I'm, I'm into the merit thing. The problem, though, with some of the merit-based stuff is that it can be manipulated easier, I think, than if it's just flat based on, you know, how many years you're there or what kind of job you have. I worry about disproportionate impacts on like minorities and women when you go to merit. I don't think it has that has to trend that way, but it has in the past. And I'd be concerned about that. Is it as much of a concern because public pay is transparent? It has to be disclosed versus like, if it was in a private setting, it's not, it, it doesn't have to become public knowledge. But if there's a, you know, a report, you know, that, that has to be generated anyway, because you know, we need to, we're accountable to where that money goes, then it, it maybe minimizes that risk. Yeah, I think that helps minimize the risk for sure. It definitely can yeah. assist with that. Yeah. But I would want that to be like a focus if you're switching, you're moving sure. more to that kind of model, right? Sure. I think it's already done. I think, any, you know, you can look up anybody's salary as a public employee. So I think if, right, if there it's was, more just like yeah. making sure then that you're, analyzing that data and paying attention to it, that there's right. procedures for people. And just cause like one of the problems, I mean, even with like the police, there's a lot of police forces that are not super diverse. And that's a problem that the police, uh, many police departments know about and they're actively trying to recruit, you know, for more diverse police forces, but that could mm. really impact you if it's a merit-based system. But you're right. Like, you know, if you have public data on it and someone keeping track and, right. um, tracking it, then yeah, maybe you address that problem somewhat. Yeah. And then if you're, you know, if you're in violation, you know, obviously you can't really like the government can't sue itself, like in that way, mm -hmm. like you have to pay a fine, but like, you know, maybe there's other ways of like, okay, like you're going to have federal, you know, Oversight federal people come in. Yeah. And, and that's your penalty is now like you're, you're under some higher jurisdiction, you know, that there's a, a board of, you know, uh, attorneys from the justice department that comes in to monitor activities like i think that happened at know. my middle school 
we had our test scores were so bad for like a certain number of years and they sent in people and they like restructured certain classes and if you didn't get scores within certain ranges you ended up taking like three math classes and three English classes and you weren't allowed to take history and science and band and these other subjects until you got like up to the standard in those classes I don't I don't know exactly what was happening, but I remember hearing, because I was only like in seventh grade then, they were talking about like, oh yes, the government is coming to like (laughs) fix our school because we we have not done well or something like that. Ronald Reagan would be repulsed. He would be repulsed. But at the same time, the school is actually like doing much better now. So I don't, I don't know if it was because of that, but I I think it did turn around. (laughs) I have a question just jogging back a little bit and you talked about from personal experience that your stepdad my Mm -hmm. father-in-law being in a government job and not being a member of a union and like can you did I miss it can you simplify like why would you look at your if a union standing you a pamphlet and says you get all these things so he for maybe maybe don't have to be specific about I don't him, know the, but, yeah. the particulars of what he was for against but he he had a government job through the state I think it was a state at the time uh, and that job basically was you belong to a union in that job whatever that job was and so the union was bargaining for things but those were things that he didn't want bargain for they didn't represent his interests and yet he had to pay however much a year in union dues for those interests to be argued for. So I think that that changed recently. So, so a business can require you being No, he, in the union? he's no. public. Remember, he cast a work for, for California State Fish and Game. No, I know, but I guess I'm saying I don't understand if he opted in. Whatever the structure was, being belonging to that public sector job, working for the government, he had to belong to the union and pay union dues. Or maybe he didn't have to belong, but he had to pay the dues, something like that. Regardless, his beef was, I have to pay union dues because my job belongs to this union, but they didn't represent me. And I think in 2018, there was a Supreme Court decision that changed that where he could then opt to withhold his funds. I don't know. I tried to look. I I couldn't see what the decision was. But I remember him celebrating like, oh, my gosh, I finally get to keep. Basically, he got like a 5% raise or something because he didn't have to pay into the union anymore that he didn't believe in. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what happened. There's there were a bunch of unions where and they were mostly public sector where you ha- they could require that you join the union in order to um have the job and then there's a bunch of states uh called right to work states, which is kind of confusing because it's not really a, the naming of that was intentional, I would say. Yeah. Um, but they're right to work states where there are laws that allow people in those states to work without being required to join a union or pay union fees. There's 27 states who have those laws. Um, California is not one of those states, just FYI. But then, yeah, there's this 2018 Supreme Court decision. I also don't have the name of it, but it said you can't require people to join unions. The reason that there were those requirements is because of the idea of the collective representation, you know, the unions needing the income in order to be able to represent the entire labor force because you have to represent everyone. You can't just like say you're negotiating for we're doing higher wages because that's the easiest one to go to. But I just want to emphasize there's lots of things yeah. you can negotiate for. But for higher wages, 
you're negotiating for higher wages for the whole workforce force, not just for the people who are in the union. And so the idea is like you're benefiting from the union no matter what. And so you have to pay the fees for it. Like that's the idea behind it. But, you know, there's all of these, there's a lot of issues with people, like people thinking like, well, I don't want to have to join something that I disagree with or, you know, have to pay money for something I don't want to pay money for. So now you don't have to have that requirement. And we never said this, but the reason why you would have union dues is because the union is basically has, you know, a staff, a team of lawyers and other people that are going and doing these negotiations on your behalf. So all those people mm-hmm. require money. So we should have maybe said that in the top, but basically the union dues cover any of those types of, of fees or work that's done. And they also require, or they also cover if the union decides to strike because the, the workers then also keep getting paid out of those union dues. So that's a very clear example where you would benefit from paying the dues because then you would get your money back in a sense. That's what the union dues are used for is, you know, costs and activities the union provides for you, as well as somewhat of a insured compensation if the if the workers strike. Right. Well, maybe I'll just have to call my stepdad and ask him because the theoretical is confusing of like, your interest not being represented is like, I understand that as a concept, but knowing what unions tend to do, I'm, I would I would be surprised and maybe needing an example mm-hmm. of like why you would turn that down. I just don't know why people don't want to be in a union. Well, so like my dad is a teacher and he has like gone back and forth in the teacher's union. Like he's joined it for a while and then not been in it for a while. Mm-hmm. And one of his big issues with the union was – that he thought that it kept teachers in who shouldn't be in. And so just on like a philosophical level, he disagreed with it. And so he didn't want to be part of it. I think he, I think he might be in it now, like currently for other reasons. I don't want to like speak for him too much, but if you look around and you're like, well, that's not a good teacher and they're here because they've been a teacher for 20 years and now we can't get rid of them. You might be like, I'm not really feeling the union because I don't think that that should be happening. That's a good example. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to run this by the parents and make sure they're giving all their stories. So many people. We should have stayed with pop culture recommendations and stayed away from questioning our relatives' life choices. Something, something, stranger things, something, something. Oh my gosh. Guys, I still haven't recovered. I really haven't. You left our house in a flurry. You guys, we all watched Stranger Things season four together. Parts, the last, parts eight and nine. Like, volume yeah. two, the last two episodes. And, and like the last two episodes are probably truly five hours, an hour and a half <laughs> to two hours. It's It was so yeah. long for both of them. And Erin just like got up and left. <laughs> she was like, I emotionally cannot like have consumed this content and also like chat with you guys after. She was just gone. I needed to go. <laughs> It was some of the best television uh, I've ever seen. It was so. It was incredible. Oh my god, the whole all of season four, but especially that ending. Oh man, it was so good. Yeah. I don't feel great about where we left things though for like two years. I'm <laughs> so stressed. I'm very, very concerned. <laughs> very stressed. Yeah. There's some. There's some trauma and peril ahead. <laughs> and that's just what I'm gonna experience. Yeah. <laughs> the kids. It's true. If only they had unionized against Vecna. Stop. They might be able <laughs> to have better living Vecna. rights. They are. They, don't work they are Vecna. unionizing. <laughs> they are, yes. They're united against Vecna. <laughs> yeah. 
they're they're united. That's maybe the way to put it. Um, how are we how are we feeling about unions? Any opinions we haven't gotten to share yet? Anything spicy? I don't I got think to share so. everything I wanted to and more. So yeah, looking into it made me want to know a lot more. Like, there's just a lot to know. There's this whole legal framework, where there's a philosophical framework. There's the history. You know, like you could spend a lot of time going through it. Civil rights. I think like you could do a whole a whole year study of civil rights and unions in the like in the sixties and fifties and it'd still probably have a ton to learn. Yeah, my my dad's whole theory is that you could teach a history class just based on unions. Going through unions, you'd actually cover mm-hmm. a lot of American history. Hmm. I think that's true actually. I, I, I believe that because there's a, a paper that I I referenced. I didn't read through the whole thing, but I, I referenced a lot of it on from the Mises, um, from the Mises Institute, that's the history of labor unions. And it's from literally colonial times through 2009. And it's a quite a lengthy article. I have a general public opinion question. What is, do we think the public opinion about unions? Like, okay, for example, I'm not in a union. Zach's not in a union. Aaron, are you in a union? No. Okay. So obviously we're not speaking from personal experience here, but... Like, I guess I'm wondering, is being in a union or unionizing the kind of thing that people have um, general opinions about? Like, in general, I'm against unions. Like, there are certain things in in the political sphere that people have, like, I'm just most of the time going to be against this thing. If it comes up, I'm not for it. But or or the opposite. I'm, I'm always going to be for this topic. Do people feel like that about unions? I would guess sixty four percent of America approves of unions right now. Sixty eight percent. Oh. Ah, so close. <laughs> very close. So yeah. <laughs> so are the are the other percent of people that don't approve? Do you? I guess I'm asking: Is that a general feeling, or is that like specific to like? Do you not approve of unions as a concept if you don't approve, or are you not approving of unions? for yourself in this situation you're in right now? I think it's a kind of as a concept, you know, like Hmm. uh, Governor Walker in Wisconsin, I think there was a huge Mm -hmm. fight over if the state was going to allow for collective bargaining, I think on the public side, because public unions are governed by federal and state law. And they, they voted against it or he, he spearhead the, the movement against it. And I do actually think it's I was surprised by the 68% figure because I feel like I hear a lot from the right about how bad unions are and I did read I was trying to you know take a look at the the other side of it and the only thing I I, I really got to was this really inflammatory Fox News article that just had like this whole list of you'll get lower wages and you'll lose your job and this is so bad for like our uh, free market system I think there's I think there's legitimate critiques to unions that we've kind of talked about. Um, but I think s- some of the rhetoric about it is just like this is anti-free market and the government shouldn't mm-hmm. be involved in this and we should just let businesses do what they do. And if they compete enough, then we'll have all of these rights anyways, which is not how it played out really until we ended up having unions. But I think that's one of the reasons why if you don't know a lot about it and you're kind of just going on like what you see in the politics, you might, if you're a more conservative person, you might think like, oh, I should like not like unions because they're anti-free market. Okay. That's a good, that's a good answer. Cause that's kind of 
I mean, that's kind of why we do what we do is because sometimes people you follow and tend to believe don't like a thing. So then you think, oh, I'm probably not supposed to like that thing. And I think it depends on how powerful the union, what sector they're in, right? Like, like there's a lot of factors where it's, it's not so cut and dry. Cause I think you could say on a whole, if they're, if the sole purpose is collective bargaining against a business, then yeah, that is a little anti-competition, but, and, and maybe we would have gotten there in the end, but the timeline would have taken a lot longer for some of the working conditions things. So it's like, just as with anything, like, I don't think if, if every concerted idea was implemented, that would be a, a wholesale good. Just as I don't think every, if every progressive idea were implemented, that would be a wholesale good either. Like, I think you need a little bit of both. And so over time, like, I think working conditions did need to improve. You know, I'm grateful that we don't have child labor being something right. that's okay in the United States. Like, there's there's a lot of things that are like, looking back, if you were, you know, to honestly pull somebody and, and get their assessment, I don't think that you would really have them saying, well, because we got you know, child labor laws out of unions, then like, that's a bad thing. And unions are bad. Like, I think unions have done some good things, but they also provide shelter and, and opportunity for some negatives too. And and it's just how powerful are they? How much influence do they have? And, and of course, that's, uh, you know, where we, we get into the disagreement about should they keep the amount of influence they have? Should they gain more? Or should it be scaled back? I wonder, too, if this issue is a little more nuanced just because there are unions that liberal people don't like, like the police union. And so you're not necessarily going to be wholesale. Yes, unions are good all the time because there's unions who you have issues with. So maybe we are a little bit better about like approaching this in a more nuanced way because of that. That's why I want to bring up the, the police and the teachers, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, depending on what side you're on. When I say that's each side of the aisle is going to have very strong thoughts about either one, right? And and so it's like, but they benefit from the same system. They have the same goals as far as the union is concerned. So it's like, if you're in favor of one, but not the other, then it. I think that helps people think a little bit more deeply about why they actually feel the way they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, it was beneficial to me, right? Like, yeah, I want teachers to be paid more and police to be paid more, but I don't want the poor performers to be retained. Okay, that's useful. And you're, I mean, and it's an interesting thing, maybe just those two examples. I, I have so many teachers in my life that it makes a little bit more sense, but it is fascinating because like the way that they get paid and raises is, I mean, truly, if I ever wanted mm-hmm. a raise, like I had to ask for it or work for it or whatever, but the idea that theirs is negotiated and argued for on their behalf is, I mean, that's so different than anything I've ever experienced. So yeah, for me to be completely for or against that without knowing about it feels like a weird way to approach it. Maybe this is like you guys were saying, maybe this is a good model for us, like to not just have an opinion on something and be like, that thing is good or that thing is bad just Mm -hmm. because we feel that way because there are a lot of reasons why somebody might be for or against that thing that we can't understand because we're not in their position. And yeah, that might not be like totally. a, a thing to demonize them about or to think that they're wrong or stupid or whatever. Cause I've definitely heard inflammatory language for and against members of unions before that. I thought, Oh wow. Like that must me- mean unions are worse than I thought, or that must mean like people who are not joining mm-hmm. the union are really 
holding everybody else back and like suck for that reason. But yeah, it is more nuanced than I thought. That's that's my takeaway. Again, I think the key thing for me is like you can't necessarily place like a moral or value judgment on somebody based off of like one opinion you hear about them. <laughs> yeah. People are people are way more complex than that, and so just because they believe X doesn't mean you know why they believe X. You have the history of what X really is, and you know uh, what their their motivations are. So, okay, well, this is a good place for us to wrap up. Then, thank you everybody for joining us as we learned about unions today. Um, also, I'll go ahead and link our other recommendations, like. You guys should watch The Office and <laughs> Brooklyn Nine-Nine and read The Four Winds and The Midnight Library. <laughs> if there's anything else I forgot, I'll go ahead and include it for you. Um, just as a reminder, we have our Instagram page at ReframersPod. We have our website, ReframersPod.com. Those are our most active places. If you'd like to send an email, you can send it to ReframersPod at gmail.com. Your listens and support mean so much to us. You can go ahead and hit subscribe if you would be so inclined. And a five-star rating and review would mean the world to us. Let us know what you want to hear from us coming up in new topics. I know police is on. It's on the docket, Amanda, I promise. Um, capitalism, I'm pushing for one of those maybe coming this late summer or fall. Um, but if there's anything else you want to talk about, I do think we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. So don't be worried. We talked about it a little bit last year when we talked about the separation of powers, but um, inspired by the Motley Fool, like year in review, we're going to do like a, a year in review of the Supreme Court decisions that went through um, when they're on. Is it a summer break that they get or fall break? I think it's a summer on break. I think they give they give the opinions in the spring. Yeah. And then they they start hearings again, I think, in the fall, maybe. Okay, we're going to talk about Supreme Court. We're going to talk about police. We're going to talk about capitalism. Anything else? Let us know and we'll hit it. Thank you guys so much. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 